0: Welcome to Craftsmanship, a podcast discussing technical skill in the contemporary art world told through the oral history of fabricators. My name is Harriet Salmon. I independently produce this series as a free resource and as a record of the last 20 years of fabricators' experiences. Who are fabricators? A fabricator is someone hired to assist in the production of an artwork. Unlike the traditional artist-apprentice relationship that could contain an element of mentorship, a fabricator provides a technical skill to an artist as a paid service. Fabricators can be found in foundries, dark darkrooms, woodshops, and laboratories in roles ranging from master printmaker to studio assistant. They are part of an unseen mechanism of the contemporary art world, and their skills produce objects essential to the global art economy, a market currently estimated to generate over $60 billion in annual sales. With scholars and institutions meticulously documenting the intentions of artists, who is recording the stories of these craftspeople? This podcast will document fabricators' experiences to shine a light on the amazing breadth of talent in the field and to capture this particular moment in the art world. I'm interested in conversations about hierarchies within craft versus concept, questions of intellectual property, trends of de-skilling in the art world, wealth disparity, and the conflict felt by many fabricators between working in art production and being artists in their own right. Hi there! Today we're going to be chatting with Caitlin Riordan, a master printer who trained with Peter Pettengill at Wingate Studios, located on a farm in Hinsdale, New Hampshire. Caitlin started off in printmaking with a BFA from the Maine College of Art and went to work with Peter in the multiple plate aquatint etching studio. There she printed with artists including Luis Bourgeois and Walton Ford. The studio's work can be found in the permanent collections of the Baltimore Museum of Art, Cleveland Museum of Art, Library of Congress, Minneapolis Institute of Art, the Museum of Modern Art, and the Whitney Museum of American Art. After Wingate, Caitlin went to work at Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, where she is currently the head printmaking technician and visiting instructor in print. Along with artists and educators, Kelly Driscoll and Grayson Cox, she founded and runs PI, or Pratt Institute Editions, a program which invites artists to campus to publish a print with the resources at the school, and in collaboration with the students. Their last partnership was with the Painter and Pratt MFA alum, Trudy Benson. Due to the continued COVID 19 pandemic, we will be talking digitally to Caitlin in the Letterpress Studio in Brooklyn. think a good place to start is probably your experience at Wingate Studios uh, which I've seen described as a multiple plate aquatint etching studio in New Hampshire that was founded by Peter Pettengill in 1985. Um, I'm wondering if you could talk us through what that technique is um, because there's a lot of different uh, kinds of printmaking and so being really specific
1: about that one I think would be super helpful. Sure. Yeah. Um, So I did, I trained at Wingate studio um, and I trained under Peter Pengill and he is, um, he's a traditional intaglio printer and the studio specializes in traditional intaglio printing. There's other forms of printmaking that they do, but uh, that's kind of their main, main technique. And the thing I think that, that Peter really has locked down and developed, he's particularly good at, is using multiple plates to create color. So one of the things about printing etchings um, is that you're pr- the technique is wet on wet, which means that you're printing every layer one right after the other, you're not letting those layers dry in between. So in a technique like lithography, you would lay down your yellow layer first and then let it dry and then print your blue layer on top of that. In wet on wet intaglio printing, if you put down a yellow layer and then you go to print a blue layer, you're able to actually create yellow, blue and green all at the same time because those colors mix physically in the printing press. So it gives you a really wide range of being able to create color. So from six plates, each plate typically holds one color on its own, but from six plates, since you're overlapping all of those colors in different areas and then having them be on their own in other parts of the image, you can get a really intense range of color from six plates. The reason that we say six, it doesn't have to be six plates, but the reason we say six plates is that once you've gotten to that sixth plate, you've kind of, for various technical reasons, you can't effectively continue to add because you'll lose some of the things that you've gained. So that's kind of the threshold.
0: You'll like start covering up or muddying, the existing
1: yeah. layers. You'll start muddying the existing layers and you'll also lose some of the quality because every time that print goes through the press, so you print the yellow layer and then you slide in the green plate and you print the green layer, that yellow layer, as it's going through, it gets slightly lighter because it offsets through the printing because the ink is still wet.
0: Gotcha. So some like some ink pulls off the print because it's all
1: mushy still. Exactly. Yeah. And we, um, we work, um, at Wingate and and myself here, um, at Pi, I work with copper that is steel faced. It's electroplated, with steel. So that allows you to get really, really intense color. One of the things that I find when I'm teaching and talking with students, when they see kind of perfect, what we call professional, in Tolio prints, they can't believe how vibrant the color is. Mm-hmm. If you don't steel face those plates, the copper itself is a very dirty metal. So it oxidizes against the, the ink. And so your yellow will look a little green, um, okay. your red, why,
0: why wouldn't you use a whole, uh, steel sheet? Like why would you back, why would you face it with steel and have copper underneath
1: Because the actual technique of creating the etching, you're using ferric chloride, which is actually a salt and not an acid, even though we call it an acid. So it's not as toxic as using other materials to etch the plate. Also, copper is soft in terms of hardnesses of metal. So it allows the artist to be able to draw effectively with a scribe into the copper um, or do multiple drawing techniques into the copper where the steel would really resist that copper is also somewhat flexible when it goes through the press so the pressure of that steel roller on an etching press kind of flexes the copper down and it creates more pressure because of that so it's like a like a stamping motion kind of it's a rolling motion so you're um, you know an etching press is a effectively geared the way a bike is, but there's a steel bed, which is basically like a plate, like a table. And then there's a bottom roller and a top roller and there's a gear and a crank. And when you crank that crank, it pushes the bed between those two rollers. The rollers are moving. And so it allows the bed to travel. You put the copper on the top and then you put dampened cotton rag paper on top of the plate the copper is the plate. That's what we call it. Um, and then there's, uh, a series of woven felts that go on top of that. And so the felts are soft and they are pushed down by the roller, the roller, the, the felts push the paper down into the grooves of the copper. That's where the ink is. It's in the grooves. And so all of that kind of flexing is what allows you to create a really nice print. Well, right when you pull the print off the press, if you look at it sideways, it's actually slightly sculptural. You can see wow. the image is actually slightly raised from the paper because the paper has been embossed into that piece of copper.
0: Does that stay when the everything dries or is it just kind of a plumping with a wet on wet.
1: You can make it stay if that's a technique that you're looking for. Um, but usually that's, that technique is, uh, it's called a blind embossment and it's different than it's a, it's a different component of the technique. You, you can make that happen. It requires you to finish and dry the paper differently than you would if you weren't trying to keep that embossment. Typically we put the, the paper itself because it's wet. If you were to, to let it air dry, it would dry as kind of like a paper uh, potato chip kind of would uh-huh. wobbly. So we put it between these boards and we clamp those boards down. There's a fan that sits next to the boards and it blows air through there so it dries it flat. If you wanted to keep that embossment, you would basically stretch the paper onto a wall the way you stretch a canvas. Oh, cool. Yeah. And it dries yeah. flat that way and you don't squish the embossment down.
0: Yeah. Very cool. Um, could you could you talk about, um, I've heard about, I am, so our viewers know, not a printmaker in any way. So this is all new to me. So it's good to hear you describe the techniques because I'm a total layman, but could you talk about different uh, things that could be done to the plate? Uh, you talked about like etching or scratching with a scribe, but it seems like there's a kind of chemistry kit of things that can leave an impression on the plate that can then get transferred.
1: We refer to etching as intaglio because it allows you to kind of relate to its history. It has a really cool history. It was developed in the 15th century. It's believed by Italian knights. They started working with jewelers because jewelers were doing some incising into jewelry and they wanted to be able to make patterns in their armor. So they would etch their armor and then rub effectively what is ink into those etched lines. So you could see the pattern of the armor. At some point, somebody realized that you also could probably make art from that technique. We don't really know who or how, or but the technique itself, that's the, the basis of it is that you're doing something to a copper plate that allows you to incise or create something that goes into the surface. And once you've created something that goes into the surface, that can hold printmaking ink. So you put the printmaking ink all over the surface of that copper plate, and then you do a series of techniques to start to remove the ink from the surface because you only want that ink to sit where the incised line has been created. So there's a, a number of different kind of strategies for how to create an incised line. And depending on what you're looking for, you would employ different strategies. So, for instance, if you wanted something that looked an awful lot like a pencil mark, you can create that through a, a technique that's called soft ground. So there's a series of different. I'm, I'm getting, oh, I'm getting a little pedantic here. There's, there's a series of, of, different things that you can do to that copper. One involves you just taking something sharp and drawing directly into that copper. So there's no chemistry involved in that. You just direct scratch it. The other techniques involve some chemistry, and what you're doing is you're Using different materials that have inherent qualities, mostly it's that the qualities that they have are that they're oil or pigment based. And so something that's oil or pigment based generally resists anything that is very watery. Mm-hmm. And the chemistry that we use to chemically plate is this stuff called ferric chloride, which is basically made out of 50% water. So, you can use these materials that are water resistant to block certain parts of the plate so they're not affected by the acid. And then it's
0: like a ma- masking tape being off areas, and then everything that's not masking taped
1: will be etched by the salt. Exactly. And okay. there's a lot of crossover when you, if anybody has had experience in dark room photography, there's a lot of crossover in that kind of theory. So, the, the stronger you mix the acid, the faster it will etch. The longer you leave the plate in the acid, the deeper it will etch. So there's a lot of timing. It's it's an awful lot like baking,
0: uh-huh.
1: um, where you have to make sure that you understand the difference between something like baking powder and baking soda, because they're, they need to be used together, but they're not the same thing. So there's a lot of that kind of crossover. I use a lot of cooking and baking analogies when I'm teaching. And then the other technique that is involved, um, is you referred to it earlier, it's called aquatint and aquatint allows you to create fields of color. It's my favorite technique. It's incredibly difficult and incredibly fun. It involves ground up rosin, which is just tree Amber. And that rosin happens to be acid resistant and you dump that rosin into Basically, what is a giant box with a fan in it? And you turn the fan on, and all of that ground up rosin is basically dust. And you create this dust storm, and you let that dust float around, and then you put the plate into that box and let the dust settle. So you're basically making a handmade DPI. You have all these tiny little specks of dust, and then in between those little specks of dust, is exposed copper because mm-hmm. you don't have the dust sitting everywhere. It's like a little snowstorm. Then you melt that using a either a torch or a hot plate, and those little dots adhere to the copper. And then you can paint or draw or do whatever with different materials that are acid resistant, so that you're blocking it out. So you're basically painting in the negative,
0: and then you can from okay. there. So the dots are like very well, evenly distributed on the plate. That's and then you kind of bake them on.
1: Yep. Okay. That's the idea. The really It is like baking. The really fun part of that though is um, the part where I said it's hard. The dust um, is basically invisible. So you can't really see what you're doing. <laughs> Let's make it even harder. Let's make it invisible. Yeah. So, and when it melts, you have to make sure it melts exactly to the right point. So if you under melt it, it'll flake off while it's etching. And if you Mm -hmm. over melt it, those dots, instead of sitting separate from each other, they'll get big and fat and they'll hit each other and they'll become amoebas and you'll see it. It'll look grainy in the image. It won't look smooth and continuous. Sometimes you do that on purpose because you're trying to do that. But yeah, I've learned over the years that the way I know if it's melted is actually to smell it. I stand with my nose right next to it. And the second it smells like campfire.
0: We oh got the OSHA person to me is like, no. <laughs> but <laughs> Okay. So the moment it smells like campfire.
1: <laughs> the moment it smells like campfire, it's done. Awesome. Yeah.
0: Um, you, you've worked with some pretty amazing artists at Wingate Studios. Um, are there any projects that stand out where problems in this system arose or like what the artist wanted kind of intrinsically created an issue within the the printmaking process like what were some kind of I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you about the tough projects like what were the ones where you were just like uh pulling your hair out and did you solve them how did you solve them is there a time ever that you were with an artist that you're like this is intrinsically unsolvable because of the nature of etching
1: they were all, every project I ever worked on was impossible. Um, But in the best way, I think that's the reason that printmakers are drawn to making prints is that we are problem solvers and we're really stubborn. So I don't have any memory of any project that, um, at Wingate that we ultimately couldn't solve the problem. Uh, I there were problems that took longer than other problems. Yeah. Um, I did a, a print here at Pratt um, with Trudy Benson, and I had Trudy, she uses a, an air gun in her, her work, and I wanted to give her an option to mimic that. And so I tried to put a material that is called Sugar Lift, through that gun. It's, it's the consistency of, a, a India ink. So I figured we'd be able to do it. I think I spent maybe seven days testing that to try to get it to do what we wanted it to do. And yeah. it didn't work. And I find it, it was just clogging in the gun or it wasn't clogging in the gun. It was that it was so fine that when we went to do the next portion of the process, where you're asking that stuff to actually release um, Uh from the plate in warm water. It's a material that's made primarily out of sugar. So it's water soluble instead of it coming out in little dots. It, it all just came off in a chunk and Eventually, I said to myself, "You know you're not the first one who's probably tried to do this, <laughs> and you're not like a genius who just made this up <laughs> for the reason in the hundreds of years of printing history <laughs> exactly exactly um, so and and ultimately, Trudy wasn't interested in it, so it was sort of like I was trying to do something that mimicked her painting process, and she came back and reminded me that she wanted to make a print, yeah and I think that that is the moment there's an aha moment when you're working with artists, especially for the first time where it's such a struggle because it doesn't look like it's working. It, the beginning of a print looks terrible. It, it's ugly. It's messy. It's the colors are wrong. Things aren't lining up correctly. And it, it often makes the artist very anxious because they're, they're looking at something that's not working. And yeah, this is a very slow process, very, very slow. So, you know, one six plate print, if it's a a medium size, it could take three hours to even see a proof from that. Wow. And then you have to wash everything off and start again. So the artists themselves are looking at this thing that's a mess and you have to admit that it's a mess, but you also have to say that it's going to be fine and they're kind of looking at you like side-eyed. Like, how can that ever end up being fine? And why are you so relaxed? And you're like, because I know that once that green layer goes on there, it's going to lock everything in. Just stay with me. And then you finally get to the day when the green layer is finished and you put it up on the wall and the artist is like, oh. And then they get excited.
0: Yeah. And do you have to, does that process only happen the first first time does an artist learn after they work with you once that that's just the way it goes
1: I think they yeah I think they get a little more comfortable but also many artists work with multiple printers um and I I, no printer does the same thing as another printer so probably every time they go to another printmaking experience it happens to them all over again I would hope that they can look back on on their experience and be like, okay, yeah. I, I think, to go back to your question though, one, one project that I, that I think about, we had an artist come, um, oh, Wingate, the, the print shop is in an old converted dairy barn. It's very beautiful. Um, it's very cold in the winter and we heat it with a wood stove, which is a constant part of our day going between printing and making sure that there's enough firewood. And there was an artist who was there and he had a very large plate and he had us put a material called soft ground on it, which allows you to create impressions before you etch. So if you wanted your fingerprint to be in the print, you could just touch it and that would happen. (laughs) He told me to stand by the door and I did, and he opened the wood stove and he sprinkled hot coals all over it. And then he said, open the door, open the door. And I opened the door and this was quite a large plate. It was uh, 60 inches by 40 inches. And he ran the plate out the door with these hot coals falling all over the wood floor in a print studio. And he flipped the plate upside down in the snow. And then he came back in and he said, can you etch this? And I was like,
0: Sure. Can, can you put out the fire uh, in my studio floor now?
1: <laughs> make like, sure. I don't know that there's anything that's going to happen. And he was like, well, let's just see. And it ended up printing the impression that that coal and the snow had done. It ended up creating these like concentric circles that were almost like fractals. It was so wildly beautiful. And he, he was like, I want to make a whole series. Well, we did three more plates. A 40 by 60 sheet of copper is quite expensive just to start with. None of them did anything. Wow. So Just the first one. Yeah. But there was no way to troubleshoot that or there was no way to problem solve it because it was, it, it didn't have enough, um, controls, you know, like in science, there were, there were too many variables of like, maybe it was the apple wood that we were Yeah. Maybe,
0: maybe it was the air
1: temperature versus the snow temperature. Maybe, you know, it could have been any of those things. So, um, so ultimately we only got one print from that, but
0: can, can you reuse the plate and print multiple, uh, sheets of paper off it? Or is, is that soft ground like a one shot?
1: No, you can print multiple. You can, basically you can print that piece of copper until the copper wears out. So copper is soft and because it's going through a tremendous amount of pressure in that printmaking press, eventually you will wear out that piece of copper. One of the reasons that we electroplate the plates with steel is because the steel is stronger than the copper. So the wear isn't, isn't quite as hard. So
0: you add a layer of steel after you've etched it yeah, to keep the shape. Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's really fun for anybody who's ever done, Electroplating—it's—it's it's really uh, kind of Frankensteiny, I guess. You just have this big vat of water that has um, for for steel facing onto copper. If you were doing something else, like if you're electroplating gold, the one of the materials you use is actually cyanide. Um, but if you're electroplating copper, it's sodium ammonium chloride crystals in water, and then essentially a car battery. And you suspend (laughs) the plate into that vat of water and you kick up the voltage and it pulls steel from a a plate that is in the, in that vat from there onto the copper plate perfectly evenly. It's really, really fun. And then you pull it out and it's like, it's like that Calvin Hobbes thing where they put he's like, it goes in the toaster as bread and then it comes out as toast (laughs) it starts with copper and then all of a sudden it's steel
0: did you see um that recent matthew barney show that was at the yale university art gallery that had the electroplating
1: i did and in fact one of my former students worked on that project and she came into this is the reason i know that you gold plate with cyanide is because she came into work one day and said to me how bad is cyanide for you (laughs) (laughs) So what you guys doing over there? Yeah. Like I were I, gold plating Matthew Barney and I was like, hold on. And I called our EPA consultant and was like, can you talk to me a little bit about cyanide? Cause I have a student who's yeah. walk,
0: walk me through cyanide real quick on the phone.
1: Thanks. <laughs> yeah. For the listeners out there, if you're ever working with cyanide and it smells like bitter almond, that's not good.
0: I mean, it sounds like the chemistry element is pretty like both the fascinating and the finicky part of things. Cause there's, you know, you're not working in a chemistry lab. You're, you're in a dairy barn in New Hampshire. Um, has there been any like chemistry surprises kind of like the snow and the, the embers just like,
1: um, I worked on a project where for about two years where I was doing, um, Essentially, research and development, and I'm probably going to mess up some of the terms that I'm using because I don't. This was quite a while ago, um, but we were partnering with a photographer slash photogravure person um, to combine a number of different techniques. So we were doing gumby chromate platinum printing. Silver gelatin printing, something with palladium, um, and uh, something, oh, uh, gelatin sizing. Um, it was all into one process. All into one process. And we were using handmade paper um, uh-huh. that was being made by Judenay, which is an incredible paper making shop. Um, but it means that. Every sheet is going to be slightly different because it's being pulped as quite large sheets. And it yeah. turned out that um, there were trace amounts of mica in the paper. Um,
0: yeah, their beaters probably had it in it from something well, else.
1: Or... Yeah, the paper was a certain percent abaca. And abaca, I came to understand all of this, is made from um, the bark from the banana tree. And it happens to grow in very heavily mica based soils and it's like forensics. Yeah. There were a lot of forensics involved in that project. Um, I, it was super fun because I was able to have a lot of equipment made materials tested, but we did discover that if there were trace amounts of mica in that paper, um, it would resist one of the processes I believe it was the platinum that just wouldn't sit on the paper. So I ended up doing a research project where through a series of phone calls to different conservators. Um, and that, that day was very fun because I, I have a friend who's a conservator and she, she gave me a recommendation of someone to call and they said, Oh, you know, this is so interesting. There's a, um, there was just a, A seminar on this thing that's called iron gall test paper, and it will allow you to test for iron gall, which is very similar to mica. So you may be able to use this. It's like, great. Where do I buy it? We don't really know. It's just been developed. Uh You should call this person. They're, they're really a specialist in this. So, you know, I call the next museum and they're like, oh, yes, I've heard about this. I've never used it before. What are you doing exactly? And I couldn't even explain what we were doing because I didn't totally understand it. Mm -hmm. Anyway, I keep going and going and going until finally I'm on the phone with the the head of medieval manuscripts at the British Museum. And I say to him, sir, I really, I hope that you're the person I need to talk to because... I've just spoken to seven or eight specialists and I've, I've come to you. And so I, I, you must be like the king of understanding this. And he laughed in a very British way and said, well, I suppose I can take some credit for that. I did develop iron gall test strip paper. <laughs> I, did I, invent it. I did invent it. And I'm like, how do I buy it? And he's like, Oh, well you can't, but I'll be happy to send you some, some strips. And it, it did result in being able to take that that strip of paper and put it onto the Judenai handmade paper and find out which sheets had trace amounts of mica in it. So that wow. was
0: and, cool. and but, so by eliminating the mica from the equation, you, the um, it the mica wasn't ca- causing a disruption in the ink. as it touched the paper
1: or? Yeah, yeah. We were able to just like cull out the sheets that had a lot of mica in it and use it for a different project. So there, there are those kinds of discoveries. Um, I think that, you know, I'm not a chemist, and I, I actually didn't like chemistry in school. I wasn't particularly drawn towards science. Um, I think that it's one of the, I mean, you know from fabricating, it's one of those, it's sort of a base knowledge that you can build on every time you go to use something else. You're like, well, I know that naphtha is really brittle, so mm-hmm. if I partner naphtha with gum terps, which are really elastic, maybe I can stop the crackling from happening.
0: Yeah. And sometimes it turns into a completely different material and totally screws me over.
1: Totally. And I think, you know, one of the things about making prints, especially with, with artists, one of the things I love is that I've, no project has ever been like any other project. So yeah. I might have some base understanding of things, but if somebody comes at me with, well, what happens if we suspend that material from a pendulum and use the earth's rotational and I'm like, sweet, I have no idea, but we are about to find out.
0: Yeah. Is it, is it easier when the artist has like a base knowledge about printmaking or is it easier when they just come in completely like curious and, like, I don't want to use the word naive, but like, uh, they don't have the restrictions of being like, it has to do this to be a, uh, print or.
1: I I think that my, my experience in having, you know, the most fun and success. Well, not always the most success, but the most fun, um, is when they don't have much experience at all because they don't have any limitations in mind. And so, and, and I do, right. Because I understand it. I, I think that there are some rules or parameters or ways in which things are done. And it's not until somebody says, well, can we use motor oil that I'm like, well, yeah, we, we can. I never really thought about it that way, but yes, that would would work. I think that the times I've struggled working with artists is when they've come in with a really fixed set idea of what they want. Like what the end end result is. Yeah. And I, I mean, not to, I'm not trying to rag on any particular kind of artist, but I I find that that is more prevalent in painters than, uh, than any other artists. I think they have this, this idea of what the image needs to be. And sometimes the material, the newness of the materials doesn't allow them to use the material to, to the best advantage. They're kind of fighting, fighting that, you know, it doesn't, it doesn't, if you're using a, ma- a particular material that allows you to, to paint in printmaking, it doesn't feel like painting. It doesn't yeah, it's, it's d- intrinsically different. And most of the time you're painting the negative So, you know, everything's kind of in, I mean, not kind of, but everything in printmaking literally is reverse. So if you, there's a common thing that gets said, if you take a Rembrandt etching and hold it up to a mirror, it looks better in the mirror because. (laughs) Because that's how, how it was done. Yeah. Yeah. There's ways in which we now do things that allow you to work with the reverse. So you can, you can plan for it, but.
0: I mean, um like that relationship with the artist of you kind of introducing this technical knowledge that you have, it's like the the relationship between master printer and artist is like a really old one and like very established. And one that I think the rest of the fabrication world sometimes looks to because it's defined in a way that other kinds of working with artists isn't like, do you think it's changed recently? I mean, it's it, sometimes I even hesitate applying the master printer and artist relationship t- to the idea of fabrication because it seems like almost a, a different kind of thing because it's so established. Like, do you think it's changed recently? Do you consider yourself to be a fabricator as a master printer?
1: Um, I consider myself to be a collaborator and a facilitator. So, for instance, a project that I'm about to embark on which I won't jinx by, you know, getting too far into it. Um, But there's going to be, it's going to be a sculpture. Um, There will be printed elements to it, but there's actually those elements are going to be found objects. They're not going to be printed by me. Uh, But I think that, I think that fabricators and printmakers are really similar because I think that, you know, if you're working with an artist and they're like, well, can that be made out of glass? You're like, sure, just not by me. But yeah. I know people who who make glass. So I'm going to call my people who make glass and we're going to negotiate how to get that part of the project done. Not everything can always be done in-house. But I I think that printmakers are closer to fabricators or sculptors than, than anything else. I, I see that in in education, you typically see an undergraduate junior second semester printmaking students start making sculpture. Then often <laughs> you don't see them go back to making prints until the end of their senior year when they realize that yeah. they're not going to have the equipment anymore. Um, yeah. I just think that they're the same, they're the same thing. You're, you're, <laughs> you're making multiples. Usually you're trying to get That multiple to look exactly like the original. Mm -hmm. I I, yeah, I I think in terms of anything that's changed, there are certain shops that don't have as much direct one-on-one with the artist anymore. I think that there's certain processes and elements that printmakers have developed that allow for more to happen when you're apart from each other, which considering where we're at right now during a pandemic, I suppose that's good. That's not the kind of printing I enjoy. I enjoy being with the artist for the majority of the creation of that print in terms of getting it to where the artist wants it to be. Once we've gotten that, then me additioning the print, making however many we've decided, I, I don't need them around for that part. That's the just physical labor part. But
0: It seems like um, like Wingate almost seem, seem like a residency. Like th- you go up, the artist goes up there, they stay there, they have like an apartment and meals, and it's like a whole environment experience.
1: Yeah, in fact, when I was there, they hadn't um, – they hadn't yet built out the apartment. There is an apartment there now, uh, but it meant that the artist would stay with Peter and his wife in their home. So it, they were there, so it was very immersive. Um, and I mean, I, I'll i give this as an example of a moment that was when I, I was pretty young and early into it, and I really understood how immersive it was. We had an artist from LA, um, staying and working and we didn't get to where we thought we would by the time he had his return flight so he's spent another week with us and with those kinds of projects you're in it you don't take any time off so if you're if that artist wants to work until one o'clock in the morning you're there from eight o'clock in the morning to one o'clock in the morning and if they want to start at eight o'clock in the morning that that's how you go so you wait until the artist leaves and then you take some time off. And so we had been working for like, I was like 13 days straight maybe. And I came in on a Sunday and I, Peter and the artists were, were in the space and I could just feel it. I could just feel the like tension and exhaustion and frustration. And I knew that my role in that moment was to ease that. And so I just instinctually said, to the artist, do you want to see an awesome waterfall? And he was like, yes, because he hadn't left the property, you know? I and mean, yeah. he's from LA proper and he's in the middle of nowhere, New Hampshire on a farm and he hadn't left or seen anything other than that same view. And, and Peter looked at me like, we don't have enough time to just be dilly dallying. And I said to him, do you want to take a motorcycle ride? And he was like, yeah, yeah. And so we went to this waterfall. I have these beautiful pictures of us hiking down this waterfall. And then we went back and we finished the print. And yeah, that distraction. Yeah. That I have no idea why I just told you that story. I can't even remember your question.
0: No, it's just that the wing it seems to provide like, um, all encompassing experience. Like it's, you're not, it's not, it's not like you're going and ordering like something like, I want this to look like this. It, it feels like, um, and I imagine looking at the prints, the quality of the prints, it feels like this kind of special time that you can't replicate at another print place. Like it, it offers a little bit more like intimate attention in an environment. And you, you even said that they like
1: farm on the farm. There's yeah. like Peter's daughter has a full working farm. Um, that was sort of up and running when I was there, but it became more full-fledged when I left. I think that there are definite, I mean, no doubt, like you're in one of the most beautiful places, you know, you, these hills to the North of you and these just you know, gorgeous old New England red barns. And it's, it's almost like a cliche because you, and it's been in Peter's family for four generations. It's, it's scooped in history. You know, there's, you can feel it and you feel like you're a part of the family, but I think that it has, I think the real thing that I, I learned and was able to take with me was that creating an experience where you're, sharing more than just making art where you're like becoming friends in a way with this person um, you can take that anywhere as a printer if you if you keep we I, I use the term room tone which is actually I guess a recording term where you mic the room when nobody's in it yeah I think to be a good printer you have to have really good room tone so when you when you walk into that space, it's what's happening in the space and it has to be artist focused, right? So you have to know, you have to know about that. So for instance, not that, not that the visual experience or the equipment or anything here at Pratt is, is Wingate at all. I feel like when I, did that print a few summers ago with Trudy Benson and I invited a very small group of people, students to come and work that we created an experience that is in a way similar. Like Trudy yeah. walked away from that saying, you know, first of all, she, she, she wanted to know if all of her friends could do it. And <laughs> That's I, a good sign. I wish I not right now. Um, but she talked, she talked a lot about how, much fun it was to, to do this. And, you know, we learned about her cat and we all took turns putting on music. And before Trudy came, I went to her studio to see what, what her normal working conditions were. And yeah, she had a lot of plants, you know, so I went out and bought a bunch of plants cause it seemed like that would help her. And ultimately we ended up like trading cuttings, over the course of years, you know, it's, I think that it, there's something about working as a team and working in that kind of intimate way and being able to, to listen to an artist and then guide them and show them and have it turn out like more than they could have expected that they there's they're so happy. They, they're so appreciative. And it, that, that lends itself for a pretty nice <laughs> working yeah. relationship.
0: What normally happens to a reject Do the artists destroy them? Do they keep them as artist proofs? Like where do they end up in the world?
1: That's a very good question. Um, they are destroyed. Um, there was, there's a pretty infamous story. I hope that I don't botch this, but, uh, Crown Point Press is a, a print shop out in California, and they were throwing away their their rejects. Um, and one of them, um, it was a demon corn print, and a series of them were stolen and from the shop, from the dumpster, I believe. Um, <laughs> and and painted. I might be confusing two stories here. Um, hand painted and then passed off as original hand painted demon corn prints. So, not only are they destroyed, they are shredded into tiny little pieces. That was one of, um, one of my first jobs at Wingate. I was 25 years old, it was my first week, and Peter pulled out a box, a giant box, from way in the nether regions of the shop and told me to destroy all of them, and they were um, de Kooning and Motherwell prints. heartbreak I spent the day shredding them into tiny little pieces and then I um and I asked if I could go on a walk and I took a walk in the cornfield and now I actually it's cathartic I I like I like ripping up prints at the end of an edition because there's a sense of (coughs) things being complete um Mm -hmm. but yeah I do remember one print that was difficult enough that when we instead of ripping them up um We took them out back and pinned them to a pallet and shot them with a shotgun. (laughs)
0: Wow. How how was that project?
1: (laughs) You also need to, um, you need to do something to the plate to indicate that the plate is done. Like voided. Mm -hmm. Um, And so in a, I was lucky enough to make, uh, a number of, and by number, I mean, hundreds of prints for Louise bourgeois. We had, um, hundreds of her plates. Yeah. And when she passed away, we spent, um, clo- at least half a year, um, what it's called canceling plates. And in her case, we just took a screwdriver and dug a giant X into the, the plate. And then that has to be printed at least two times so that it's documented that the plate has been canceled. So that way it allows the market and museums and everyone to know that there really are, if we say that this is an edition of 10, there really are only 10. Yeah. They can't be printed posthumously.
0: Does the artist or the artist estate get that X'd out print? Like, or is it just a symbolic printing to kind of complete the life cycle of the plate?
1: No, they, they do. They get the X'd out. They get the xed out print. It's called the cancellation proof. Oh, actually um, uh, way before my time at Wingate, Peter, um, Peter worked with Saul LeWitt. He, he had a very long history relationship with Saul. Um, he, he first started work, working with him at Crown Point and he did a project with him um, at Wingate it's called complex forms it's it's one of the most beautiful print portfolios i've ever seen um all the way down to the portfolio case that it's encased in it's just wildly beautiful and i was always kind of obsessed with it and peter was on vacation um up in maine and uh Lewitt's estate called uh which is at yale and they ha- they asked for the cancellation proofs from those plates and they were going to come pick them up like in the next day or something. And I called Peter and was like, did you ever cancel those plates? And yeah. he was like, actually, I don't think that I ever did. You're going to need to cancel them. And I couldn't do it. I could, I, I found the plates and I, I put, washed them off and I put them out and they were too perfect. I, I like, yeah. and because I had, didn't have any, I didn't have my hands in that project. It felt terrible to me. So I called Peter and said, you have to come home. I I can't do this. He was like, Caitlin, I'm "I'm sorry. I, I have the screwdriver. I can't not bring myself to scratch these plates. And he was like, okay, okay. Take them to the plate cutter and cut a corner off of each plate. The images on this print are triangles, so it made sense to take a triangle off of the plate. So I cut a little corner off of each.
0: Yeah. How does um, how does a how does the printer's proof fit into that like uh, uh, press and publishing model? Is that totally separate? Is that negotiated in the early contract? Do these publishing slash print shops have big archives of printers' proofs?
1: So yeah, the, the, again, each different print shop would do it differently. Um, Uh I model what I do here at Pratt with what I was trained at Wingate to do, which is to be generous. I've only once ever had an artist not be generous when it came to, to printer's proofs, but a printer's proof is a print that is outside of the edition. So if you have an edition of 30, and you have five printers who are working on that, that print, there are five printers proofs that are printed and signed by the artist and they're gifted to the printers. And so the printers develop a a pretty nice collection that way. Additionally, there are five artist proofs that are printed and are then uh, basically gifted to the artist. So there's no actual, you don't calculate that time in terms of value, in terms of money, it's like you're doing it for each other. Yeah, it's a trade. It's a trade that stays away from, from the market. Um,
0: but, I mean, that's such an incredible, I always thought um, it's such an incredible thing to, ha- to add to the relationship of the artist and the people, the technical craftsmen, master craftsmen, helping the artist make something. Because in printmaking, it's so established and so honorable I I just wish it um there was something parallel to that in other forms of of fabrication or something because it, it it seems to smooth over a lot for me it smooths over a lot of the like uh, bumpy questions yeah. that have popped up
1: while I'm making things yeah yeah it's you know fabricators printers we're not raking in the big bucks and yeah we're not really (laughs) damn no we're not able necessarily especially when we're quite young to to be purchasing lots of art and so for me it it was a way of starting and establishing a collection um you know one of the one of the printer I've only ever sold one of my printer's proofs I mean I'm incredibly lucky to be in the scenario where that is the case um yeah But a lot of people, you know, another part of the tradition is that people use those prints once they've been trained by a printer to go off and start their own studio by selling some of those prints and taking those proceeds and starting a studio. You know, there's a printer in Brooklyn. I won't say her name, but she told me that she was able to buy her building, which is where her studio is, by selling a suite of David Hockney prints that she printed quite early in her career it there's an understanding that the tradition kind of carries itself through the notion of printer's proofs it allows for things i was able to move to new york by selling one of of my prints um
0: just out of curiosity because i mean again i'm not a expert printmaker but like how are those accepted by the market are they just called a for nurse proof. Oh, they're, yeah, sold they're,
1: not, or? they're just called printers proof and nobody cares. Yeah. Uh, nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody, except for printers care about what the designation number is on, on a print. Gotcha. Um, there's a misconception when you see the edition number, if it says like one over 30, that it's the first print printed of the edition. never the case. These prints get moved around.
0: Uh, it's just over. the top of the stack when they're writing the numbers on it. <laughs> yeah, when the artist comes to sign it it's
1: the top of the stack. Um, little industry secret, though, I, I will let you know that, you know, the printer does arrange that stack. <laughs> <laughs> Funny. The printer's proofs are the last ones to be signed. So, um, you know, nobody's going to be able to tell any of the differences, but as a as somebody who is printing it, you, you have your little um, pet peeves about how things look, and to the naked eye, nobody can – that's the thing. I mean, nobody can t- – especially, I'll say, the prints at Wingate – You cannot tell the difference from one print to the next to the next, Um, but yeah, they're just accepted. And and, and printers, I mean, there's all kinds of things. There's something called an HC, which means an HC. Horrors, commerce. It's French for not for sale, except it's for sale all the time. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah. Mm
0: -hmm. Do you keep like a um, notes when you're working on something? You have like a ledger of. Is that something you? keep in a studio's archive or do you give that to the artist or does it go with the sale at all to help conservators? It goes,
1: it stays at the studio. Um, And that's one of the reasons that the conservators or, you know, museum people would call the printer. In fact, there was, um, when I was at Wingate, there was some kind of symposium out on the West coast. I got called by a conservator. Um, they were creating a data bank of, uh, print shop embossments. So when you're done with a print somewhere on the print, usually at the bottom, um, in in my case as a printer, it's always the bottom right. There's a a symbol that is embossed into that piece of paper, and it lets you know that that's the shop it was printed at. So each shop has its own embosser. It's called a chop. And um, they wanted to create a database of chops because increasingly – they were getting prints and they weren't really sure what, how they were made. And when you sell a print to somebody, you sell it with a documentation sheet that gives you a certain amount of information. But like if we were selling that print that I was talking about where the artist put hot coals on it and then flipped it over in the snow, I wouldn't list it in the documentation sheet that that's how it was made, but I would have written it in my shop notes
0: and it would be a file
1: cabinet.
0: I guess that brings up an interesting question in my mind. Like, how proprietary are those notes? Like if an artist called you up and was like, can you send those notes to this other shop? Would would you consider that their intellectual information
1: or yours? I know that's a tough question. (laughs) Um, I think that in the past, there was a attitude in printmaking that was like, my ideas are like, I'm the only one who, you know, that kind of like, how dare you ask me what my mixture solution for sugar lift is. Figure it out yourself. I spent all these years making it perfect. You know, that it wasn't your success. Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't very generous. Um, I think that that has changed dramatically. And so I think that for the most part, if somebody were to, to do that, um, people would be generous with each other, but there's, there's, there are some moments, right. Where like people have their relationships, printers relationships with their artists are, they can be very personal. And if an artist decides to go work with another printer, it sometimes printers can take that like, at, you know, personally, I, yeah, most people I know try not to, but you know, it's, that's just, it's sort of like, Oh, you're going to date someone else. Like, oh. <laughs> yeah. um, I didn't know that that's what we were doing here. Uh, so, you know, if somebody called me and was like, can I have all of your information? She because doesn't. I want to make it with this person. I'm I'd probably send it over, but I'd be a little hard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah. Um, I'm going to ask you a question that I ask every single person that I interview. Uh, What is your favorite tool?
1: Oh, (laughs) my favorite tool. I have never been asked a harder question in my entire life. Tool and not piece of equipment, right? Tool. You can do you can do a piece of equipment. That's okay. I mean, I have to be boring and say that it would be a printmaking press because I can't really do what I do without it. But my addendum to that is that I have these glass um, telephone pole insulators or, or uh-huh, the little cups. Mm-hmm. And um, this this guy I used to buy paper from, he had them in his studio because when you roll out rolls of paper, you can use those as weights and they're completely smooth on the bottom Mm -hmm. and they clean really easily and they stay really clean. So you can actually slide them across a piece of paper without it abrading the paper. And they're incredibly beautiful. And people who come to the studio always ask what they are and yeah. then I tell them and they become fascinated and then they're in like some flea market or something somewhere and they see them and they buy them and they give them to me. So I have the oh. collection of them. They're really beautiful and really useful. And that guy up in Maine who I used to buy paper from, just makes me think of him every time.
0: And I think for the press it's fine. Is there like a press that you've worked on? Yes. That you're like, that's the one. Yeah,
1: there's a, Peter's Press is, um, it's called the Ladoi and anybody who makes etchings knows it's the Unicorn Press. Um, they're French. They were made at the turn of the century. Peter's actually was owned by a printer named Aldo Cromlink, who is very famous in the etching world as being like the god of etching, um, died maybe 10 years ago. And, uh, they're really rare. Um, they're kind of one of a kind and they're really beautiful and they're really, really, really good at what they do. And actually I, uh, I'm kind of on the list of printers. Anytime one comes up for sale, I end up on the list and, uh, I have to decide Well, it's like buying a house. It's like, you know, where, where, yeah, like
0: how much, how much would, would one cost it? Like if it came up on the list in reasonable condition, a lot of money.
1: Um, but, but worth the amount of money, you know, I, I was, I was offered one that's about half the size of Peter's from an institution, um, for about $10,000 and then my ability to move it. That's probably, like, a quarter of what it's worth. But there's this kind of understanding with printers where they want the right person to have it.
0: Yeah, it seems like there's like almost like a provenance to them.
1: Yeah, there is. There is.
0: Thank you to Caitlin for sharing your immense knowledge with us. Listeners are able to see images of the artworks we mentioned today, on the Craftsmanship Podcast Instagram feed and on the Wingate Studio website at wingatestudio.com and the Pi website at commons.pratt.edu backslash prattfinearts backslash editions. Thank you to all of our listeners and a final credit to the Bryce Arisla baglia Quintet for our lovely theme song titled Mount Fuji. And please check in and subscribe to future episodes at www.craftsmanshippodcast.com.